Hampton took Stevenson on the next flight, reaching 70 nautical miles south of the Debenhams to scout sledging paths. What Sir Hubert Wilkins named the Casey Channel turned out to be a fjord. Alexander Island turned out to be a peninsula forming the southern boundary of Marguerite Bay. Carpentry occupied all hands in all but the worst weathers, quickly getting walls and roof established to the point work could continue indoors in all weathers. Stevenson erected another Stevenson screen on the highest point of the island. The dogs received their accommodations and appointments, and in order to guarantee the lineage in the selective breeding program, bitches in heat were kept clear of the pack by isolating them in the human accommodations, or the hangar, where they made thorough nuisances of themselves as only privileged indoor doggos can do. Fleming geologised the new site. Hampton's foremanship had the hut ready for all hands on the 24th of March, and while less luxuriously appointed than their accommodations in the Argentine islands, the Arga kept the place cosy, the main room afforded enough space to repair a sledge indoors, and the hangar wide enough to store the fox moth with its wings folded, and to still afford a space for workshop fixtures, constituted an improvement over the aircraft's shelter during the previous winter. Hampton installed a winch on the innermost wall of the hangar, and made a slipway of packing case wood. Using a block and tackle, two people could winch the aircraft into or out of the hangar, and to and from the water's edge. Micklejohn installed his radios and genset, and established communications between Southern Base and the outside world. On the 31st of March, cagey about the flying conditions but alert to the flying season rapidly coming to a close, Hampton and Stevenson flew north to examine the Bourgeois and the Bigorden Fjords, sighted and named by Charcot, but remaining dotted lines on the charts beyond their entrances. The flyers hoped these inlets might offer a path east where Sir Hubert's channels so far failed them. Both fjords ended in steep rock walls and heavily crevassed glaciers, an ice plateau at 5,000 feet above sea level capping the geographic entirety. Taxiing the fox moth back to southern base following a landing at sunset, Hampton noticed the spray thrown up by the floats immediately froze on the airframe. Water operations, if not flying altogether, was over for the season. Deprived of the option of an easy crossing to the eastern side of Graham Land, Rymel had to choose whether to task his sledges with a difficult traverse up the glaciers and down the other side to the Waddell Sea, aiming to reach Prince Leopold Land, or to head south to examine beyond Charcot Land. Any attempt to strike east would force their hand, expending all resources in laying depots and relaying resources, and if the route proved impossible, the expedition would depart with little new information in hand. Rymel decided to concentrate on continuing south, making a thorough examination of the newly revealed topography and geology, which appeared markedly different to the already known areas of Grahamland. A subsequent attempt to cross to the Waddell Sea could use up remaining time before the return of the Panola, offering opportunities to continue mapping and geologising after sea ice conditions deteriorated beyond those safe for sledging on the western side of Grahamland. With two months in hand before the ice likely formed thick enough to support sledging operations, base life fell into island routines. Micklejohn raised Stanley on April 4th to learn the Panola had arrived a week prior after a fairly fast transit north under sail. Roberts went to the hospital for his appendectomy, while the locals brought all manner of niceties long absent from the Panolan's diet. Fresh vegetables, milk, hen's eggs and such. Millet repaired sails in the Stanley Town Hall, and found the space made such a good sail loft that he cut a complete new set while he was about it. The younger rider deemed the Panola in dire need of a refit after several groundings around Graham Land and some mishaps mid-Drake Passage, largely due to the ship running short-handed, damaged some of the running gear. With expedition funds insufficient to cover the expense, he accepted a generous offer from the Vestfold Whaling Company, operating in South Georgia, to make use of its floating dock. With Roberts back from his hospital stay, and extra hands Henna and Barnes, 
drawn from the Falkland Islands population and eager to see South Georgia, and Falklander Halliday signing on as a much-appreciated dedicated cook. The transit east ran more smoothly than the Drake crossing until the Panola reached the islands, where fogs, an excursion up the wrong fjord, and willowars in Stromness Bay plagued their progress until the Vestfold Whaling Company station manager himself piloted the ship onto the buoy in the Stromness offing. The station manager, his wife, and five hands constituted the population at Stromness that August, but a shipwright for Husvik added his expertise to the Panola's crew of willing donkey workers and got the refit underway. The Salverson's engineering works made good the metal fittings in need of attention, the most critical being the propeller shaft bearings, noisy after running so long out of true until the concrete engine bed solution solved the earlier problems. The Panola needed lightening before making use of the floating dock, so anything not nailed down went onto a lighter for transfer ashore, including 30 tonnes of ballast, lifting the rusting, slimy iron bars out of the bilges falling to the least talented crew members on hand. Eighteen days in the floating dock saw the bulk of the work completed, and the lighter brought the ballast, anchor chains, anchors, and sundry loose heavy things back aboard. The standing rigging and running gear went back up, and the crew bent Millet's fresh sails to task. The amateur crew, while less consistently talented than their professional counterparts, impressed Captain Ryder with their dedication and industry, often working when Crookweather saw the station hands stay indoors and bending their backs with a will in spite of several knobby backgrounds and many Cambridge University degrees. Switching tracks to track the whaling thread of Antarctic history for a moment, it's notable that only two of the three whaling stations in Stromness Bay still rendered the whales caught locally. Stromness Station itself operating as a repair yard and supply depot for factory vessels and chasers, working further afield. The whaling industry having depleted whale populations in the vicinity of South Georgia to the point the shore stations weren't returning the profits they previously took for granted. It wouldn't be long before all chaser operations out of South Georgia ceased, and while Stromness itself carried on as a working repair yard into the 1960s, the stations gradually ran down to the point even caretakers were deemed an unwarranted expense. As with so much archaeology down the ages, the valuable stuff departed with the people, and anything deemed too heavy or too cumbersome per unit value got left behind. The scrap metal value at Husfik station still had a role to play in the ice coffee narrative, but that particular seed won't bear fruit until I'm recounting events in the 1980s. Refit complete, and Roberts left behind in South Georgia to continue his ornithological work, picking up later with the discovery too. It took the better part of a month for the Panola to work to windward and make Stanley once more, a total distance of 2,536 nautical miles sailed, making good the 780 nautical miles between the origin and destination. Back in Stanley for Christmas, the Panolans enjoyed the festivities and horse races the holidays bring to the Falkland Islands, and received further rigging fine-tuning from the crew of the Discovery 2, also in town at the time. A mailboat arrived on the 28th of December, and after receiving all correspondence addressed to members of the BGLE, the Panola headed south. Among the South Shetlands in mid-January, Cass received a radio transmission from the Discovery 2 to another ship, likely the HMS Ajax, requesting assistance searching for a motor launch party from the Discovery 2, missing near Esther Harbour in poor weather. The Panola, lying close to the area in question, retasked to join the search until the Discovery 2 found the marooned party nine days ashore under a dinghy after their motor launch sank. The Panola carried on to Deception Island, anchoring in Whalers Bay on the 22nd, finding the stores left behind ransacked, and the biological samples disturbed and left in the weather by persons unknown. Captain Ryder experienced difficulties reaching Port Lockroy due to the adverse winds in the Bransfield and then the Gurlash Straits, but eventually managed to retrieve the drums of ship's diesel or fuel oil put ashore there two years prior. 
the Le Maire Channel made life interesting, with unmarked shoals showing faintly through breaks in snow flurries in the already tight waters. But the Panola reached the safety of the Argentine Islands and moored up to await instructions on the 16th of February, the prearranged departure date set in case wireless contact never arose. Radio contact came through on the 12th, and Captain Ryder set south, and more on the Panola side of matters anon. Back with the other side of the expedition, Riley, Fleming and Bertram made some short forays into the islands near the Debenhams, but grease ice consistently clogged the Stella's cooling intake, and when the engine wasn't running hot as a result, thicker ice blocked its progress outright. Riley put the boat ashore under a tarpaulin, and stripped the engine down for overhaul in the hangar. The hut received finishing touches on the 6th of April, galvanised iron waterproofing the roof, and guy wires crossing over this, stayed by dead men dug into the shingle and frozen into place with bucket loads of fresh water. Bingham and Moore made bitches boxes on the roof to keep the dogs in heat clear of the pack, allowing Bingham to continue the selective breeding program without keeping dogs in the people spaces. He handed dog care over to Moore for a month when an increasingly bung knee put him on the sick list with Rymill, taking to bed with his legs splintered, hoping to get it in good sledging fettle during this lull in activity. Hampton overhauled the fox moth and found the pistons badly caked with coking from all the cold running with the carburetor heat on, and the cylinders were scored where bits of the crud came loose and got among the piston rings. He selected the two least badly damaged pistons to complement the two spares in stock, ground the valves, and accepted that the fox moth's already sluggish performance needed revising downward in light of the reduced compression resulting from the damage. Everyone took their turn in the mess, and lots of make-do and mend occupied any idle hands. A blizzard in early May exceeded anything they'd experienced among the Argentine islands and tested Hampton's hut, but having experienced similar conditions in Greenland, Hampton's design held sound bar a few unnerving shakings, which put paid to any talk of the guy-wise being overkill. More concerning was that sustained strong winds kept blowing the newly formed sea ice out to sea, pushing the kick-off for sledging back with each successive breakout. By mid-May, Bingham and Rymel took to their feet once more. Bingham, aided by a steel and seal fur knee brace, designed by the wearer and fabricated by Hampton. Training new puppies to harness saw the recovering invalids regain what fitness their month out of action cost them. In early June, with the fox moth back in one piece, but the conditions too dark to fly it safely, Hampton and Riley departed in the tractor, which turns up unexpectedly in Rymel's Southern Lights, having received no mention in Rymel's account of the preparations for the expedition or while at the Argentine Islands, over the increasingly thick sea ice to establish a sea ice landing ground, marking the flattest patch nearest the base with pemmican boxes and flags, so as to offer some perspective on height and angle of attack in poor visibility or the low angle light, associated with operating below the circle in the lead up to midwinter. On the 9th of June, Hampton made two practice ski takeoffs and landings at the site, before taking on board Rymiel and Fleming for the first reconnaissance flight of the winter. The short period of workable light limited the distance the flight could cover, but the snow lying over the sea ice, in place at this point for over a month, showed none of the grey slush telltales associated with working cracks. Marguerite Bay, at least, looked fit for sledging operations. Preparations for three parties, two using dogs and one using the tractor, kicked off as soon as the flight party returned to the Debenhams. Rymel, Stevenson and Moore, with a sledge and dog team each, departed on the 11th, aiming to make the 12 miles to Red Rock Ridge that day as a shakedown for all involved and to fine-tune their equipment. The drivers stopped on the hour to allow a few minutes adjustment of teams and loads. The newly trained dogs introduced to each team looked over their shoulders at the unaccustomed loads, uncertain at heading away from home for such an extended span. Moore experienced difficulties with his feet and hands, poor circulation leading to numbness towards the end of the day. 
Rymel took the disappointed Moore back to winter quarters the following day, leaving Stevenson at Red Rock Ridge with two sledges. Bingham and Bertram departed on the 12th with the dog team each, passing Rymel and Moore, making their way back. Hampton and Riley also departed on the 12th, using the tractor to haul two double-loaded sledges for depoting. Riley picking up Moore's sledge at Red Rock Ridge after everyone got their head down in their tents. The tractor, receiving a tarpaulin cover, worked up to fit snug and keep as much heat in the engine block as possible. Bingham and Bertram led off the following morning, scouting a safe route around the headland for the tractor, but with the ice already 18 inches thick, this didn't prove a problem. Once beyond Red Rock Ridge, the dog teams trailed the tractor, finding the going easier once the heavy machine flattened the deep snow to a firm base. The going got easier still as they made their way south, the soft deep snow giving way to harder packed surfaces, and the dogs led once more. On the 14th, Rymel left Stevenson in charge of two teams, skiing off in his own to kill, gut and flag a seal for the dogs to eat on the return leg. Reading Rymel's account of these sledge journeys contrasts starkly with Apsley Terry Garrard's worst journey in the world. 10 degrees of latitude accounts for some of the discrepancy, but method makes up the difference, with dogs and experience at working dogs affording a far less fraught journey. Short days in harness, long restful nights in the tent, bookended with a good hot feed. Each team member took time to examine themselves and their companions for incipient frostbites and to remedy sames with a warm hand or armpit, and winter sledging which near as killed the Cape Crozier trio, reads as convivial, if not jovial, in Rymel's writing. Perhaps there's a degree of Wilson's British understatement. Rymel waxes poetic about sighting distant mountains for the first time since the world began, making sound literary use of the coppery low-angle light. Blizzards, sastrugi, and slushy surfaces slowed progress over the following days. Several times, the tractor broke through a false, refrozen surface, the lower surface catching it after a disconcerting drop through the slush layer between, but Hampton got it clear of these obstructions unaided. A serious gale one night put everyone on tenterhooks. If the sustained wind broke the ice out, they would need to act quickly to save themselves from drifting out to sea. The dogs lay buried in cocoons of drift, Grawple hit the tents with a noise akin to gravel on a tin roof. Bingham and Bertram felt some tremors and made a quick survey of the campsite, but found no obvious cracks. Everyone lay in their sledging clothing, their cooking gear and bedding packed and ready for action until the wind eased. Lots of digging out of dogs and sledges and heating of the tractor engine with a primer stove under the tarpaulin featured in these winter sledging days. In the early hours of the 18th, Rymil felt what he described as a distant hammer blow on the ice beneath his tent. He dressed into his windproofs and headed out to find an open lead, two foot wide, passing by the tent and into the darkness. Further inspection showed the sea ice broken into two flows, about 300 feet across. With the wind dropped to 20 knots, these weren't jostling each other too much, but Rymel set a night watch to raise the alarm if the wind backed or the flows started rafting up. In what morning light that latitude affords at midwinter, they climbed an iceberg to get some perspective on the night's events. The leads opened up by the cracking didn't preclude carrying on with the sledges, but the tractor wouldn't make it past the first gap. The load on the tractor's sledges was spread out into a series of caches to decrease the localised pressure on the supporting ice, and flags marked the locations. Rymel began scouting a safe route for the dog teams while everyone else broke camp. They headed for a group of islands offering safety should the wind get up again, but open leads twice blocked their approach, and pressure ridges caused by icebergs ploughing through the broken up sea ice forced several further backtrackings and course changes. The dogs jumped most of the leads the drivers put them to, but some crossings required a brief swim. 
The edges of ice pans deflected under the weight of the teams, so each crossing featured a prefix and suffix of flooded surfaces, but the dogs and drivers waded through. Wet, hard work. But the dogs pulled magnificently, and they neared the nearest island shortly after sunset. Steep cliff sides and tide cracks forced further sledging until the teams neared an ice tongue set on a low, rocky shore, though the dogs had to cross a wide tide crack on tilting flows to reach this safety. A long and trying day, but with hard ground beneath them and no reason to get up in the morning, as they couldn't go anywhere until the new leads refroze, everyone slept well, safe, well-fed and warm. The island received the name Terra Firma in gratitude for this relative safety. Fogs precluded much scouting on the sea ice for the following few days, and on the 23rd, a sustained gale broke the ice up further. The dogs went on half rations in case they couldn't reach the tractor and its cache of food any time soon. On the 24th, two scouting parties headed out on different bearings to see if the dog teams might head north back toward Red Rock Ridge, both parties finding workable routes. Rymel decided to leave the tractor and its cache in place. To reach it with unladen sledges posed no problem, but the return leg would require at least one night on ice already demonstrated unsound during two nighttime gales. The dog teams headed out on the 25th and made good ground until sunset, when the smooth, wind-hardened ice gave way to large pressure ridges. The teams continued over these by moonlight until midnight, making slow, hard-knock progress until moonset forced to stay. Besides the finale of pressure ridges where the wind pushed the sea ice hard against their destination, the sledging conditions improved the following day and the team once again slept on the safety of one of the islands lying off Red Rock Ridge, just 12 miles away from winter quarters. The ice between the islands and the mainland, while cracked, wasn't jumbled about with pressure, so the going was easy on the homeward leg on the 27th. Rymill and Hampton noted with pleasure that the landing ground, sheltered by reefs and grounded icebergs, appeared unaffected by the recent breaks out as they passed it in the final stage. Fleming, Micklejohn and Moore felt extremely relieved at the return of the sledges, as the severe gales and distant breaks out led to some grim contemplations. Indeed, if the sledges' campsite lay five miles further north on the night of the worst blow, we would tell their story as one of tremendous tragedy, large swathes of northern bay ice having departed that night. A big feed for men and dogs, and preparations began for the next outing, everyone wiser in the ways of Antarctic sea ice. Rymel determined to hold off further southern forays until the sea ice endured at least one fierce blizzard that tested its strength and deposited snow to even out the rough ice surfaces. Light sledges endured such battering easily, but heavily laden ones might break up if taken over similarly rough surfaces and pressure ridges as the teams experienced on the northward journey. Looking north, on the other hand, the islands and embayments off Graham Land offered greater short-term safety while working on the sea ice, and dog teams headed out under Rymill and Bertram to examine the Labouf Fjord system, and Stevenson, Fleming and Riley headed out to cover the ground between the Debenhams and Labouf. Ground-truthing observations made from the air. Anticipating three weeks of sledging, each party covering around 200 nautical miles, Rymel held off a few weeks to ensure enough daylight for useful survey work. This time, went into a belated midwinter's party, sledge alterations and harness repair. The two parties departed winter quarters on the 20th of July, encountering first seal breathing holes and then Waddell seals, which were quickly killed for dog food. Snow flurries obscured all view and obliterated tracks, causing Rymel and Bertram to become separated during a return leg to their campsite, but the methodical mode both men employed in ensuring they regrouped safely and at the correct spot, as recounted in Southern Lights, really reinforces to me that these men knew how to operate at high latitudes. 
I don't know if there's a word for someone who really knows their shit in the snow in any language, but I want such a word so I can apply it here. Until someone supplies the apt label, I'll run with Wikensian. The sun peaked from behind a mountain on the 25th, and on the 29th, Rymil and Bertram saw some Adelie penguins. Winter was coming to an end. One Adelie followed the trail of the dog teams, sliding along on its belly at an estimated five knots. Unfortunately, it didn't stop when the dog teams did, and it slid right in among the huskies and got et. According to Rymil, Before he even had time to look surprised, there wasn't even a feather left. Thin ice, through which Bertram broke with the break of his sledge, and a rocking iceberg caused some concerns as the pair made their way north, but the ice held well enough to see them into the Labouf Fjord for the survey work. Two of the dogs, a team leader called Crow and a puppy, went missing after chasing seals, by now so common that the canine pair's attention immediately went to another whenever one dived to escape their attention, led them ever more distant until they disappeared. Their survey completed, Rymil and Bertram returned to the Debenhams, reaching winter quarters on the 6th of August, Crow and the puppy still missing. Stevenson's team worked north more slowly, establishing camps from which to make three days survey measurements, negating the need to spend time breaking and making camps. Stevenson described the feeling of returning to a ready-made camp in Antarctica after a spell standing still measuring angles with the theodolites as matching arriving home anywhere else in the world, though getting the car garaged was slightly more difficult when that car comprised 10 or 12 dogs that needed feeding and staking out. The dogs caused more trouble among Stevenson's party, one team pulling their stake and towing an unattended sled over the sea ice to attack a seal. Fleming experienced some difficulty extricating his team from the situation, as the dogs, bereft of fresh meat for some time, felt loath to give up the steaming carcass they feasted on. This party also lost a dog, Nanook, but when they failed to catch him and harnessed up to move on, the errant husky took his place in the team, trace-free but apparently oblivious to the fact that they didn't need to be there. Riley caught Nanook when the sledge came to a halt and the creature of habit halted with it. Stevenson recounts trying to calibrate his breathing while working the theodolite or sextant. Long periods standing still taking angles led to chilling, particularly in the fingers and feet, so he would take short runs around his worksite between sightings to encourage his circulation. But if he exercised too vigorously, the resulting panting breaths deposited water vapour on the lenses of the instruments, where it froze and required gentle cleaning before he could continue the survey work by which time a particular star may have transited beyond utility. A radio set allowed time checks against the signal from Buenos Aires, and Stevenson occasionally taxed the batteries for the pleasure of tuning in a voice other than the eight they'd heard through the winter months. Stevenson headed his party back for the Debenhams, in spite of a desire to carry on his work in Square Bay, reaching winter quarters three days after Rymil and Bertram. Rymil tasked Hampton with a reconnaissance flight to the north end of Alexander Island to examine the sea ice. A traverse in that direction required sledges operate far from land, and unless the ice looked sound and unbroken, he wouldn't risk sending a party that way. The dogs that Moore had trained to harness while the sledges worked out to the north weren't in as good a condition as those just returned, and Rymil determined to use the depot at Red Rock Ridge as the marshalling point for the southern sledge forays allowing Moore's dogs to partake of more fresh seal meat than they'd enjoyed at the Debenhams, this being the only variable Rymel could pass as explaining the difference in form. I'm in a small dell behind the primary sand dunes at Point Cook Coastal Reserve, watching the blue wrens and swatting the march flies. The summer gradually comes to an end in Victoria, Australia.
You might not be able to hear the flowering plants, but the bee might give away that I'm not in Antarctica today. Awaiting clear flying weather, Rymel sent the dog teams out to Red Rock Ridge to find the tractor, while he and Hampton stayed on at the Debenhams with the fox moth. On the 14th of August, Hampton made a test flight. The fox moth's engine was falling 50 rows per minute, short of its maximum, and he didn't want to find out it was something more than wear and tear in the engine, causing the disparity, while hundreds of miles south of safety. The engine ran smooth, so Hampton put it to the Alexander Island task the following morning. The flight revealed Charcot's Rothschild Island and Nicholas II Island as attached to the mainland, but the sea ice near Alexander Island showed as too thin and broken up to be trusted for sledging. Another revision forced on the expedition, but nothing the flexible Rymill couldn't make the most of. They couldn't risk sledging to the end of the Falkland Island dependency as planned, but they may have spotted the point Wilkins Stephenson Strait entered Marguerite Bay, perhaps offering a sea level path to the Waddell Sea. The following day, Hampton and Stevenson flew up a promising looking strait, but fog prevented them making any useful conclusions about it. Bingham and Fleming headed south with dog teams, and Hampton noted them making for Terra Firma Island as the flight returned, ensuring that no one worried overmuch about them in the subsequent five day long gale. On the 22nd of August, knowing the sledges must be short on dog food, Hampton and Rymel loaded the fox moth with doggy vittles and headed south. They found Bingham's party south of Red Rock Ridge, moving slow in deep and soft snow. Fleming breaking trail on skis and Bingham running both dog teams. Rymel threw the sacks of food out the door as Hampton made low passes near the sledges and then dropped a note requesting a report on landing conditions using a pre-arranged physical code. Fleming and Bingham stood in the positions and raised an arm to indicate the surface state and wind, and Hampton used the men as reference points to make a safe landing in the otherwise undifferentiated whiteness. The news. Bingham's team experienced delays due to the gale and due to tent repairs necessitated by a sledge running through it under the efforts of overly frisky young dogs. The team turned again for winter quarters with very little achieved. 18 seals sighted on the return flight saw several hunting forays improve the meat cache, and the dogs remained on full rations for the rest of the expedition, as the coming summer saw seals increasingly accessible. Bingham and Fleming returned to the Debenhams on the 26th, after very slow going since the resupply, the dogs and their drivers sinking into the deep snow at every advance, and low temperatures preventing the sledge runners sliding. Bertram and Moore headed out with fresh teams to make trail for the final leg. A big relief to Bingham and Fleming's dogs. Another flight to the possible Stephenson Strait on the 4th of September revealed it as a sound, offering no sea level access to the Waddell Sea. Rymel planned the final southern sledging journeys based on this new intelligence. Five dog teams under Rymel, Bingham, Stevenson, Fleming and Bertram would carry south together until Rymel and Bingham turned west to examine the southern end of Alexander Island. The three remaining teams would continue south, giving Wilkins Stephenson Strait one last chance to exist. This final push south kicked off on the 5th of September. The initially heavy loads, 1,100 pounds per sledge, required some relaying, but the mode of Rymel's expedition made even this bothersome practice run smoother than any previous Antarctic foray managed. While travelling in company for the first 200 nautical miles, the two teams operated as separate entities. Stevenson's party took advantage of their size to rotate tent partners. Two men shared one tent for the time it took the sole occupant of the other tent to work through a ration box, and then the sleeping arrangements rotated, giving relatively new company every three weeks in the shared tent, and some privacy and a chance to spread out and dry damp gear for the singleton. Poor weather caused some long delays, up to eight days. On one occasion, everyone broke camp and lashed up, only to travel for 200 yards, at which point the poor visibility saw the teams among the pressure ridges and slush-filled leads. They made camp again, dampened and tired by their exertions, but less dispirited than previous sledging parties experiencing similar frustrations, confident they would reach their goals and return safely, where both of Scott's pole parties, Campbell's troglodytes, 
and Shackleton's poll party saw their goalposts shifting on them or experienced existential dread every time the weather pinned them down. Rymil abandoned the planned attempt to cross the Graham land to ensure the pressure to return to winter quarters didn't see the southern forays cut short before both parties completed all possible useful work. To this end, Rymil decided to bolster Stevenson's party with supplies from his and Bingham's sledges and to return to the Debenhams and make a depot foray to terra firma to leave enough material for Stevenson's party's return leg before coming south with Bingham once more to complete their less ambitious tasks. The two parties farewelled after Rymill and Bingham helped Stevenson's team portage over rocky ground on a promontory, and after Bingham put two stitches in Bertram's lip, where one of the dogs, on being remonstrated for eating its harness, the only dog-related injury of the expedition. Crossing the promontory required Stevenson lead his teams up and over steep slopes, circumventing the badly pressured and broken ice sighted from the air, and giving them access to the shelf ice in the sound beyond. The nearly replenished loads required a lot of relaying on the uphill leg. Low visibility at the ridgeline saw Stevenson call a halt, and a good job too, because the fog lifted to show a vertical drop not much further on. Clear weather the following day saw an enthusiastic gravity-aided descent across good surfaces, covering 25 miles. At the edge of the sound, Stevenson and Bertram surveyed, while Fleming went to geologising. Stevenson applied a rigorous routine to his surveying programs. Radio time signals from Buenos Aires corrected the chronometer, which served up one facet of the data required to determine a position correction using astronomical measurements every 30 or 40 nautical miles. These sites served as the base from which theodolite angles on every visible geographic feature took up Stevenson and Bertram's day, sometimes for several days, and Fleming geologised if any rocks showed near enough to hand. Dead reckoning based on compass headings and the sledge meter readings supplied intermediate positions, against which compass bearings on landmarks, taken every meal or rest break, filled in intervening detail. Each night, the most prominent features were added to a living chart of the new landscape the party occupied, the first humans to ever see it or visit it. Stevenson recounts a two-foot-long piece of wood breaking off one of his skis, seriously hampering his progress and this footnote in the expedition account really brought home to me how much the equipment these men used was their life support system, an umbilical back to the rest of the world. I'm accustomed to thinking that way about environmental systems in aircraft or breathing apparatus for divers, but a ski is a deceptively simple and undeniably important article to a monkey operating at a high latitude. He made do and mended as best he could and carried on because the alternative was to lie down and die in place. The party encountered a Waddell seal eight miles from the ice edge, and operating on shelf ice too thick to offer egress anywhere nearby, concluded the animal must have caterpillared there across the surface. At the time, long-distance land travel by seals was largely unknown, but both seals and penguins sometimes head into the hinterland for no readily apparent reason, covering tens of miles before dying, their desiccated corpses sometimes lying in state until ablated to dust by wind-driven snow. Some seal corpses in the dry valleys of Victoria land may be centuries old. I'm starting to ask around to find out the current record distance from open water folks have encountered such carcasses. Rough uphill surfaces slowed the party down, then steep downhill slopes required drag chains added to the sledge runners to prevent uncontrolled descents. Whatever the conditions presented, the dog drivers dealt with them methodically and on they carried. Good surfaces and weather in mid-October saw regular distances of 20 to 25 miles covered each day, gradually reaching further south, hoping the coast on their left would peel away to the east after each successive headland and reveal the elusive Stephenson Strait. The rock formations on the western side of the sound held Fleming's attention. The shift from raggedly scalloped razorbacks to flat-topped hills suggested a change from igneous to stratified sedimentary structures, but at the distance in question, this potentially significant geological discovery about the region lay tantalisingly out of reach to him. Examination through binoculars eventually led to a conclusion that the structures were sedimentary, rather than serial lava flows and ash beds, adding fossils to the list of things calling Fleming westward.
On the 19th of October, two days beyond their scheduled turn for home, with the sound showing a perimeter of mountains in all directions south and east, and the overall Graham land trend to the north and south continuing as far as their vantage point afforded view, Stevenson declared their turning point at 72 degrees south. The feature Wilkins and Ellsworth reported as the Stephenson Strait, if it did exist, didn't extend from the Waddell Sea to the eastern side of Graham Land, as previously reported. Stephenson Sound might yet turn up on a chart or map, but Stephenson Strait wasn't a strait. The continent margin, if Graham Land did constitute a separate entity, lay further south. Alexander Island, previously thought a maximum of 50 nautical miles along its north-south axis, actually extended at least 300 nautical miles. Lightning sledges and rising temperatures might have made the return journey less arduous, but the dogs were tired and the food situation bordered on shortages. They had enough to get by without severe rationing if the weather held mostly fine, but there wasn't much fat in the system, figuratively or literally. The first significant stop on the way home saw the team make the first ever footfall on Alexander Island, first seen by Bellingshausen a century and change earlier. The excitement Stevenson recounts as the sledges drew near the first rocky outcropping makes clear the pure childlike joy scientists can experience when they find something new. They staked the sledges and ran to the rocks. Remote sensed conclusions about sedimentary structures, quickly finding validation once samples came to hand. Falling asleep with the happy thought that I've found sedimentary rocks is a foreign concept to me, but one with enough parallels in my own experience of seeing a species I haven't encountered before that I get what Stevenson was on about. The following morning's fossicking yielded the bonus. Fossil beds. Mollusks and plants made up the bulk of the 48 specimens collected, and more would likely have come to light, but the team needed to keep moving while the weather held. A second and final camp on Alexander Island at 70 degrees south yielded fossil belemnites and brachiopods in a series of interbedded sandstones, limestones and shales, indicating a varied and interesting past. Another hundred specimens went into the collection. As with previous parties in isolation on dull staples, talk most often turned to particular niceties each of the men looked forward to on reaching home and the various cafes and restaurants they intended revisiting. Variety in nostalgia in place of actual variety. I really like Stevenson's recounting of a particular moment of shifting perspectives and I quote him here in full. The time signal set was always placed outside the tent to prevent condensation and I had gone out rather earlier than was necessary. It was a glorious evening and I knelt down by the set and was soon completely absorbed in listening to a broadcast of a public meeting in Europe. The speech was highly oratorical and the audience was completely carried away, cheering wildly, with the result that for five minutes I was back in Europe. Slowly, however, I became conscious of the things in front of me and then, suddenly, I looked up and the full beauty of my surroundings came upon me as if I had suddenly been transported there. To the east, the silvery mountains cut clearly into a dark blue sky, whilst to the west, the ice-covered mountains and glaciers were floodlit by the long rays of the setting sun. Everywhere was complete calm and silence. End quote. A record run of 26 miles on good surfaces got the party most of the way to a depot they'd cached on their way south, but their approach was almost thwarted by whiteout conditions as they crossed the pressure ice adjacent to the land on which the depot lay. Bertram went ahead, casting his whip out into the emptiness and watching its landing to the extent the visibility allowed. He followed the lay of the whip, casting to either side any time its landing indicated a gap that might lead to a fall or a drubbing. A slight improvement in visibility almost led to disaster as Bertram and Stevenson scouted ahead, no longer applying the whip method. They took a 30-foot fall into empty space, landing unharmed but badly shaken in a drift of soft snow, the false perspective offered in the flat-light conditions, leading them to think a vertical face was a gentle slope. The British Grahamland expedition experienced weather delays previous sledging forays didn't encounter. Where Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen and so on regularly experienced delays due to blizzards, 
Rymel's sledge teams had to halt when fogs prevented their generating effective survey data. Previous sledges heading inland didn't experience such regular fogs and could have carried on sledging even if they had. But the central goal of the BGLE fell off the table if a party carried on without maintaining a contiguous series of geographic observations. A black speck in this landscape of white, thought at one point to be Rymill and Bingham on their way with the resupply, quickly resolved into a smaller but far more surprised a daily penguin, the first living thing encountered in some weeks, and 30 nautical miles from the ice edge. The surprised but always ready dogs quickly tore it to pieces and ate those pieces, some blood on the snow and the lips of the dogs being the only record of the existence of the once-was bird. Seven of the weaker dogs got et to conserve dog pemmican as far as the depot at terra firma, and the humans began cutting their daily rations. Poor visibility continued to keep progress slow, and unless the weather cleared, further dog culling lay in the offing. Five days of fine weather and good distances put this disquiet to bed, and then, on the 11th of November, two black specks that didn't resolve to short-term penguins instead turned out to be Rymill and Bingham. The parties updated on each other's findings. Rymill brought the sad news of Jean-Baptiste Charcot's death in the storm off the coast of Iceland, recounted in episode 32. That they overlooked the bay named for the wife of their colleague, and in some cases, mentor, as they discussed the French polar pioneer's death, made the moment seem all the more melancholy. Rymill and Bingham were heading east after reconnaissance in the Foxmoth indicated against a western route to try and flank Alexander Island. They were just breaking trail from a depot they laid and from which Stevenson's party replenished their supplies. The two parties parted company on the 12th of November. Stevenson and co reached winter quarters a week later without resorting to further dog culls. Short-term penguins and lolling seals spurred the dogs to savage acts against the local wildlife and each other, two of Fleming's charges breaking their harness and going missing in one particularly dramatic melee in which two dog teams converged on a single unfortunate a daily. Stevenson supposes the reason this happened again and again falls to the fact no penguin survived such encounters to share its hard-won intelligence with the rest of the species. Inverse transformations took place inside and outside Hampton's hut that first night back. After two and a half months and 600 nautical miles on the trail, bedraggled men shaved their faces and cut their matted locks and cleaned their greasy and crusted skin, while clean, glossy-coated dogs rolled in the dirt, cinders and blubber denied them during their 600 miles of service on the ice. Rymill and Bingham operating on provisions flown south by Hampton in an epic series of foxmoth movements, intended remaining on the trail until January. Hampton and Riley did the bulk of the depot flights, Riley being the lightest and thereby allowing the greatest effective payload. Hampton regularly depoted Riley with the caches they laid, so he could return to winter quarters and come back with even more material, which Riley then unloaded and stowed. Several times he was left overnight in poor weather but the methodical nature of the BGLE ensured he was well fitted out with gear, so he camped out without fuss. The operation got sufficient food and fuel into the field to support Rymel's proposed exploration and survey work, and then to see the party survive long enough for the Panola to find and collect them, should the sea ice in Marguerite Bay become unsledgeable during their foray. Perhaps they might be left waiting for the Stella Polaris, if worst came to worst. Another badly scored piston in the Foxmoth's engine saw Hampton swap in one of the previously discarded units. The aircraft's performance was suffering with each successive flight, and the low compression afforded by the scored pistons and cylinders prevented Hampton climbing the plane above 7,000 feet, even when lightly loaded, thus precluding any attempt to cross Graham land by air. Rymel and Bingham had departed the Debenhams on October 26th, with Hampton and Riley driving a single sledge to establish a support depot at Terra Firma Island for anyone returning late in the season. The support team, comprising entirely bitches, and most of them young, 
weren't expected to keep up with the lighter-loaded, more experienced teams already run in with Rymill and Bingham, but impressed everyone with their efforts, arriving at the camp not far behind their counterparts, apparently very pleased with themselves, and accepting the praise heaped on them with the usual canine enthusiasm for any and all attention. After meeting, exchanging news and intelligence with, and then farewelling Stevenson's party, Rymill and Bingham continued south on the 12th of November, climbing over the same rocky promontory that slowed everyone's progress, but which kept them clear of problematic ice where it met the sea, and hoping to get a view of what lay to the east. Rymill knew, from Stevenson's team's work, and from the reconnaissance flights, that no sea-level crossing to the Weddell Sea lay within reach, so he and Bertram intended finding a path east through the mountains. They picked their initial path eastward from the ridgeline of the promontory, making a start up their first glacier on the 16th. The lead sledge ran light with a half-load, breaking ground to allow the fully loaded sledge behind to make progress on the grade. While the lead sledger went back to relay up the other half-load, their alternate got the camp ready, the dogs fed and bedded down, and dinner on the go. The driver running the relay sledge carried a pup tent and sleeping bag in case the weather changed and caught them out on the trail. On the 24th, Rymill climbed a peak while Bingham, seeking to rest his crook knee, made camp. Expecting to see the east coast of Graham Land, or Scripps Island, plotted as lying nearby by Wilkins during his 1928 flights, Rymill instead found a wide plateau bordered by more distant mountains. They made a depot near a rock outcropping near the peak, setting in stone and near stones that the path they used from here on forward had to also be the path they returned on, and then traversed the 700 feet to the plateau on the 26th. The plateau surface proved good, and the dogs quickly covered the 23 miles to the confluence of ice and rocks at the far side. Once more, Rymill climbed a peak while Bingham made the camp, and this time Rymill sighted what he thought was the shelf ice of the Weddell Sea, laid out flat below. But a thin cloud layer precluded certainty. The following day, the cloud receded and revealed a cliff between the peak and the lowlands, but the lower reaches remained shrouded. Survey days and a day spent lying up in fog eased the need for immediate progress, but no matter how far afield Rymill scouted, when the weather allowed, no easy path downhill presented itself. Badly crevassed glacier to the south, steep mountains to the north, cliffs to the east. They tried the glacier and experienced several dangerous moments, Bingham losing his lead dog when it went through a thin snow bridge and, in its distress, bit through its harness and disappeared into the darkness. A second dog went into a crevasse, but came to rest on a ledge and Rymill retrieved it with a looped alpine rope, lowered to the animal and cinched around its neck, the dog suffering no obvious ill effects from the short-term hanging it experienced as they hauled it back up to the sunlight. Close examination of the crevasse bridges showed Rymill and Bingham something new. In all their experience in the Arctic and their two years in the Antarctic, they never saw such thin bridges with such solid-looking surfaces. The wind-groomed snow showed no telltale concavity, and sticking his head through an ice axe-mediated hole, Rymill couldn't spy any thicker areas, the bridges apparently comprising a uniform thickness. I want to ask a glaciologist what process might lead to such deceptive surfaces, but I don't think I'm slated to bump into any this season. If you know the answer to this icy riddle, please get in touch. How do uniformly thin snow bridges form? A day spent surveying and resting Bingham's knee, and they backtracked to the plateau, circumventing the glacier by circling around its head to see what tracks they might make further south. Rymill's dog team broke trail after Bingham lost his lead dog, navigating the reciprocal course back to the plateau using the P4 compass when snow and drift obscured their vision. Slow going with half-load relays, and days spent laid up due to poor weather. Rymill found himself alone on the relay leg when a blizzard obliterated the tracks he was following back to the camp Bingham was making, but he used dead reckoning to make his way back to the depot site and used a compass course in place of sled tracks to set out for Bingham once more, 
coming across the camp as precisely as had he seen it. Once more, the methodological competence of this cohort of British operators shines through. Rymill's calm recounting of a situation people not accustomed to high latitudes might find unsettling, standing as the man's mean. There's a really cool paragraph in Rymill's account wherein the two men, their moccasins and gloves hanging in the tent peak, lying back on their sleeping bags in their underclothes, discussed the dinner menu. Pemmican is pemmican, but they spoke long as to whether to have that night's pemmican broth thick, with lots of pea flour, or thin, savouring the food long before it began cooking. Small pleasures in straightened circumstances. The following days only offered occasional moments for surveying, but Rymel dutifully carried his theodolite about the peaks, triangulating distant landmarks when they showed through the cloud layers, and taking astronomical sightings and updating the chronometer with the Buenos Aires time signal. By December 13th, with just four days of food in hand before needing to turn for home, Rymil and Bingham stymied in their attempts to descend from the plateau, and perhaps wary of taxing Bingham's knee with additional straining on that front, decided to head north on the plateau and see what they could see from the peaks beyond their first few days on the plateau's edge. Not much, as it turns out, as a blizzard pinned them down between the 18th and Christmas Eve. Christmas Day dawned clear. Bingham geologised, while Rymill took a final set of angles from the northern margin of the plateau. Then they broke camp and made for the depot and the mountain pass to the west. They covered 19 miles that day, reaching the depot and celebrating Christmas with some boiled sweets and chocolate gifted them by Bertram. Traversing known ground they'd already surveyed, the fogs and drift snow no longer necessitated lying up, and the lightened sledges and good surfaces ensured good distances on most days. I'll quote Rymil extensively at this juncture, as he manages to say a lot with just a few paragraphs of carefully chosen words. Quote, Soon after we started again, the wind slackened, and we could see down onto the shelf and sea ice of Marguerite Bay. We were still 130 miles from home, but this first sight of well-known landmarks and the sea always a thing of life, even when frozen, gave us a pleasant sensation of familiarity, which was a relief after the austere country through which we had been travelling for the last 45 days, a country which had known eternal peace until we, two puny little black dots in its vastness, had the impudence to lift the curtain for a few brief days and look upon its beauty. Now that we were leaving it behind, I had a feeling of intense pleasure in knowing that we had travelled its glaciers and scaled its mountains and come through safely. But this feeling was tinged with one of loss, as though a friend had died, for the curtain had again dropped, and in dropping, had hidden a scene difficult to put into words. Day after day we had travelled through silence which was absolute, not a depressing silence, as of the dead, but a silence that had never known life. Even more impressive had been the sheer immensity of the country, and the atmosphere of mystery which seemed to dwarf us. The great mountains which have stood there untroubled for countless years. Depths to remind us that even here time goes on. And to think that when we return to England, one of the first questions we shall be asked, probably by a well-fed businessman whose god is his bank book, will be, Why did you go there? How can one reply other than flippantly to such a mentality? But the high plateau of Grahamland is no place to indulge in daydreams, and we hurried on. End of quote. So many people to thank at the end of this episode. There's Cecile, April, Josh, Zaley, Fum, and Ben at the Port Phillip Eco Centre. There's Lauren and Maru. Jazz, Sue, and Andrew. Jackie, John, and Jennifer. Lots of articles coming out in 2020 celebrating Bellingshausen, and I saw one from the Smithsonian Institute trying its hardest to Lord Wilkes, much to my surprise and amusement. We're at the bicentennial of several claims for the discovery of Antarctica, and I'm expecting a lot more ink and oratory will be expended in trying to bolster different nations' claims on Antarctica. Take care, 
and appreciate your coffee. <laughs>